You know, sometimes as uh, followers of um, Jesus living in Australia, you know, sometimes you can feel like a bit of a misfit. You, know, you don't really fit in uh, that well. Uh, you can feel a bit like a reject. Uh, the direction that our society is moving in feels like that we are becoming more and more like strangers uh, in the land. And uh, maybe some of you already feel that way, uh, perhaps in a work situation. Uh, maybe you're the only Christian there and you feel a little bit out of place at times. Uh, or for some of you, that, that can be that way in your own family. Uh, but we can feel more and more like we don't belong. Uh, being attached to Jesus, it's certainly not as easy as it was even 10 years ago in Australia. And so we can start to wonder, is it really worth it? <clears throat> Especially if you experience hostility, you can, you can start to wonder, is it worth following Jesus? And you might even wonder, in today's society, why would anyone want to be attached to Jesus? Well, do you know this passage speaks to that issue? Uh, this passage in 1 Samuel? Because this passage is all about rejection. It's about not fitting in. Uh, David, uh, if you can remember, David, he was the anointed king, the king who was going to replace Saul. Saul was the rejected king. And David, he had to be on the run because Saul did not want to give up the throne to David. Saul made it his number one ambition to destroy David. And so although David is the anointed king, at this point he's now a fugitive. He spends his life hiding. He spends his life on the run. He's public enemy number one. And so this, these two chapters that we just read, it follows David as he runs for his life. But the passage is not just about the king who is rejected. The king, it's not just about the fugitive king. It's also about those who attach themselves to him. What's it like to attach yourself to a fugitive king? And that's what this passage is about. So we're going to look at three things in this passage. This passage tells us the plight of the king. It tells us the people of the king. And finally, the, uh, the protection of the king. So let's look first at the plight of the king. Uh, that's in chapter 21, where you have two accounts of, um, of David's plight. And these two accounts show how desperate David was, the, the plight that he was in. So first in verse 1, uh, we see that David, he flees to a place called Nob. And uh, Nob was where the um, tabernacle was now set up. So that's where the priests were working. Uh, Ahimelech, he's one of the priests. And when he sees David, he's, he suspects there's something wrong. Because why is David alone? That doesn't seem right. And uh, David tries to put Ahimelech at ease by uh, making up a story that he's on a secret mission for the king. Now, the reason David did that most likely was to, to protect Ahimelech so that he didn't really know what was going on. That way he couldn't be held responsible for helping David. Uh, David knew that if, if, he, if he was found out for helping him, that that would put him in danger. So David spins this story. It's to protect Ahimelech. Turns out it doesn't work, but we'll get to that later. 
Um, but the point of this section with the um, Ahimelech is it's to show how desperate David was because he, he's on the run. You can't prepare for that. And when you're on the run, you can't just duck into Coles or um, 7-Eleven or something like that. There's no way you can prepare. And so he's desperate. He has no food. He's hungry. So he goes to the place where he knows there is some bread and uh, he receives bread, but it's nothing less than the bread of the presence. The bread of the presence. Now, do you know what that is? Uh, if you read Leviticus 4, it talks about the bread of the presence. It was this special bread that was set apart in the tabernacle. It was, it was sacred. It was holy. And uh, it, it symbolized uh, that God is the provider of Israel. Um, the bread wasn't necessarily for God. It was for the people. It was to, to, to say, I'm among you as your provider. However, the only ones <clears throat> who could eat that bread were the priests. The priests acted as representatives of Israel. And so uh, once a week that bread was baked, it was placed on this uh, table, it spent the whole week there. At the end of the week, the priests would then get to eat that bread. And only the priests. The law stated very clearly that it was the priests who were to eat this bread. And yet here we see David gets it. David eats the bread of the presence? What? How can that be? And uh, there's um, lots of um, debate about how, how it is David could eat that because it doesn't really tell us here in the passage. You'll notice that Ahimelech, he focuses on ceremonial cleanliness, which is what verse 4 is about. Uh, and, uh, but that still doesn't answer the question, how come David, a non-priest, is allowed to eat the bread of the presence? And to find out the answer, we would need to go to the New Testament because Jesus quotes this story. Uh, the Pharisees accuse Jesus of breaking the law, so he goes, hey, have you never read what David did with the bread? How he was able to eat that? And Jesus shows that, that Ahimelech was, did the right thing, giving the bread to David, because there's a broader principle in the law, which is about acting in kindness to those in need, which is what Ahimelech did. Uh, Jesus, he just describes that principle as God require, uh, desires mercy, not sacrifice. But anyway, that's getting a little bit off track. The main thing to see here in 1 Samuel is that David was desperate, David was on the run, he was in need, and God supplied his need with his own bread. Okay, that's the point of that. It shows David's desperation. But not only does David receive food, uh, you'll notice down in verses 8 and 9, he receives a weapon. And the weapon he receives is none other than Goliath's own sword, uh, which will be significant in a moment. But just notice before that, just notice verse 7. It's like the, you know, you can imagine if this was a movie, all of a sudden the camera would sort of veer into the background, into the shadows. Who's there? A guy named Doag the Edomite. You know, his name, it's, it just sounds bad. What's this guy? Doag the Edomite. Well, we'll have to wait and see what happens because he's there, he's watching everything unfold. We know he's one of the servants of Saul. How will that play out? We'll have to wait and see. Okay, so David, he has his provisions. 
And so he flees. Verse 10, look at verse 10. David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And uh, Gath, uh, we've actually heard about Gath before in 1 Samuel. Uh, Gath was a Philistine city. Remember, that's where the ark of the, the Lord once went. It caused all kinds of havoc in Gath. But the other thing we know about Gath is that that was Goliath's hometown. Goliath, the champion from Gath whom David has just killed. <laughs> so here's David. He has Goliath's sword with him, and he flees to Gath. Why on earth would he do that? Isn't that a death wish? But again, it's to show how desperate David was in his plight. Uh, for David to flee to Gath, he actually felt safer going there with Goliath's sword than to hang around in Israel. Because in Israel, you know, he, had no, he didn't belong. Uh, in Israel, there were spies everywhere for Saul, like Doag the Edomite. And uh, so there's no way David could be safe in Israel. So he, he reasoned to himself, it would be better to go to, to the, the one place where Saul would never think to look, where there would be no spies of Saul, the very home of um, Goliath himself. Well, where Goliath used to live. And uh, so that would be the last place Saul would look. But really, it was the lesser of two dangers. And David wasn't safe in Gath because he, he wasn't there long until uh, some of the locals actually recognize him. And the reason they recognize him is because David has been around lots of Philistines since killing Goliath. Uh, David, if you can remember, went out on all kinds of campaigns uh, he was so successful in, in victories over Philistines that there was a song about him. And the song was very popular. It was, remember, it was a number one hit at the time. And even the Philistines know it. Because if you look in verse 11, uh, the servants of Achish say, Hey, isn't this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And so they take David, <clears throat> or they seize him, they drag him before <clears throat> the king of Gath, and uh, David is absolutely terrified. So what does he do? Well, David becomes a great actor. Um, think about David, he, he seems to be accomplished in everything. You know, he's a great um, military commander, a great uh, fighter. He's, a, he's an amazing artist, you know, poet, psalm writer, and now he's an actor. This guy can do everything. Uh, and so he, he, he acts, he pretends to be a madman, and he's slobbering uncontrollably. Uh, he's making marks on, on the wall, which I'm uh, not really sure what that means. Um, you can probably use your imagination. But Akish, he looks at that, and, he, and he's convinced. He thinks, this guy's mad. And he says something very funny in uh, verse 14, uh, no, verse 15. He, he basically says, I've got enough idiots surrounding me. I don't need any more. And so he lets David go. And David escapes. And uh, it might be um, a little bit amusing um, seeing David acting like that. Uh, and yet we can't underestimate the peril that David was in. It's easy to overlook with all the, all the funny aspects of this story. But we can't underestimate how stressful that must have been for David. 
you know, his life is on the line. He had to act like a madman. It shows how, seri- how, how, how much danger he was in. And we even know how he felt during this time because he composed two psalms about this experience. Uh, so Psalm 56 uh, captures how David felt in the middle of all of this and it, it begins by saying, Be gracious to me, uh, O God, for man tramples on me all day long and attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. But he says, when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. Uh, That's how he felt in the middle of it, just that that all day long. And then after he escaped, he composed another psalm, which is Psalm 34. We read it at the start where uh, David here, he expresses the relief that he felt the relief of being able to escape from Gath. So Psalm 34, it says in verse 4, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man, i.e. David, cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his trouble. Is that one not up there? Oh, sorry about that. Uh, Anyway, uh, so David, his his, um, plight, constant danger, constant hiding, no form of safety except the Lord himself who provided for him with his own bread. So here we see David, he's a a fugitive on the run, no place to lay his head. Uh, David couldn't go about openly but had to remain in desolate places. And so here we have, this is, remember, the Lord's anointed This is the one who has been promised the kingdom, that he will be the reigning king. And yet what was the path to the cross? One of suffering and rejection. Now it reminds us of someone, doesn't it? It's amazing how much of David's plight parallels that of Jesus. Because Jesus was also the anointed king, the one who was anointed well before he actually ascended to the throne. And so you can see in David... It's like a foreshadowing of the life of Jesus. The experience of David, it foreshadows that of Jesus, uh, where just as David's path to to the throne was through suffering and rejection, so it was for the Son of Man, for Jesus himself. In fact, it's... It's almost certain that Jesus would have pointed his disciples to the life of David to prove to them that he was actually the Messiah. Because over and over, Jesus told his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. And his disciples could not get their heads around that. They could not accept the fact that the Messiah would suffer, especially death on the cross. That was a huge stumbling block to them. There's no way they would have believed that Jesus was the Messiah, having seen him crucified. That just did not work in their minds. So how is it that they came to believe that Jesus was the Christ? How did they come to believe? Well, Jesus rose from the dead and he proved to them that he was the Messiah. How? By pointing them to his sufferings. 
And uh, on the road to Emmaus, he had a couple of disciples, and it says in Luke that he interprets to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And no doubt Jesus turned to Isaiah 53, Psalm 22. Surely he would have turned to those passages. But I wonder if you've ever considered that on that road to Emmaus, Jesus would have turned to this part of 1 Samuel to prove that he was the Messiah. And what is the proof? Suffering. Because look at David. David foreshadows Jesus. And what do you see? That the path to the throne is through suffering. And therefore, the Christ must suffer before he enters his glory. That's what proved to the disciples that Jesus is who he is. He proved from the scriptures, and you can see right there in the life of David, that the Christ must suffer. That's the plight of the king. And so the king we follow, King Jesus, he's the king whose path to glory was through suffering and rejection. And that leads us to the second thing that we see in this passage, which is the people of the king. Okay, we've looked at the plight of the king, but now we see the people of the king. And that's in chapter 2, verses uh, 1 to 5. Uh, here we have uh, David, he's escaped from um, Gath. He now goes to a place called the cave of Adullam. And his brother and father's house turn up. It seems like they also felt the threat of King Saul. Uh, anyone attached to David was hated under Saul's rule and uh, was um, chased. And so his family turn up. But have a look at verse 2. This is the verse I want to really unpack um, now. Uh, it says, And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them, and there were with him about 400 men. So it sounds like a pretty rough crowd that David attracts. Uh, you've got everyone who's distressed, everyone who's in debt, Everyone who, uh, well, it says bitter in soul, but it could be translated as um, discontented. See the three Ds. Distressed, debt, discontented. And so what you have here is these people who were so dissatisfied with Saul's kingship that they would rather be attached to a fugitive. They'd rather be aligned with David, who was hated and rejected, and was constantly hunted, they would much rather be associated with him than with King Saul. That's the people David attracts. And, and, and so they're actually giving themselves over to a life of being hated and rejected. They'd much rather that than be attached to Saul. David welcomes them. He becomes their commander. And that means that the leadership that David has is such a contrast to King Saul. Because we've heard a lot about Saul in this uh, 1 Samuel series, the type of king that he was. And over and over, we're told that Saul was the king who takes. He's the king who uses people. So anyone with a bit of talent, anyone with a bit of strength, anyone with um, any kind of, uh, you know, something valuable to offer, Saul would take and he would use that person for his own purposes, to build his own power, to establish himself. But David is nothing like that. David welcomes the distressed. He welcomes the debtors. He welcomes the discontented. 
And again, you can't help seeing a shadow of the type of king that Jesus is, the type of people that Jesus welcomes. I mean, Jesus welcomes the weary. He welcomes the spiritual debtors. Uh, Look at what Jesus said in, in Matthew 11. He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Notice, notice that Jesus says, I am gentle and humble in heart. That's the type of king he is. That's why he welcomes the weary. Uh, Jesus, we're told he was the friend of tax collectors and sinners. See, Jesus' kingdom, it's not of this world. Jesus doesn't just fill his kingdom with the powerful and the successful, the impressive. No, no, it's like what it says in 1 Corinthians. Look at 1 Corinthians 27. It says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, the nobodies. And so as a result, what does Jesus' kingdom look like? When you consider the type of people that Jesus welcomes, what does Jesus' kingdom look like? It doesn't look that impressive in the world. In the world's eyes, it looks like a bunch of nobodies, a bunch of misfits, people who have nothing to offer. Uh, Jesus' kingdom, it's, it's filled with nobodies. It's, it's because it's a kingdom that values humility. Jesus is, his kingdom is one that is about kindness to the weak, you know, caring for the oppressed, loving the unlovely. It's a kingdom of grace, not power, not success. And do you realise that's the greatest news there is? Because it means that anyone can be a part of it. Okay, it's not just the, the successful who qualify. Anyone can be part of Jesus' kingdom. The only condition is you have to come empty-handed. You have to come without any sense of entitlement. You have to come recognising that there's nothing in you that qualifies you for Jesus' kingdom. That the only reason you can be part of it is because of the type of king that Jesus is. That he welcomes the spiritual debtors. He welcomes the distressed. He welcomes the discontented. That's the type of king Jesus is. Okay? Gentle and humble of heart. That's why he can say to the weary, come to me. He's a good and gracious king. And so it makes us ask the question, are any of you here today distressed? Are you feeling distressed? You know, do you look at the state of the world? Do you look at the society that we're in? You know, the, the direction our society is moving and you feel distressed. You feel like you're getting squeezed out. How can we belong? What do you do if you feel distressed? You do what the people in the passage did. You run to the true king. You run to Jesus. Because he is the king who will one day reign and will put everything right. That's what you do when you feel distressed. You run to Jesus. Or is there anyone here today who feels in debt? And I'm not talking about mortgages or um, overspending on your credit card. Spiritual debt. Anyone feel like a spiritual debtor? 
Now that is, you feel like the debt of your sin is so big. Uh, you know, we sang that song. Uh, we stood neath a debt we could never afford. You know, our sins, they are many. Do you feel that? Do you see that there's just how unworthy you are? And you have that sense of debt. Where can you have that debt removed? How can that debt be taken away? There's only one. And it's the one who is willing to pay your debt in full, which he did at the cross. And so when you feel like a spiritual debtor, when you feel like you've blown it again, when you feel like a failure, that you, it feels like you'll never be done with sin, what do you do? You run to Jesus. You run to Jesus, who can take away your sin. Or is there anyone here today who, who are feeling discontented? That is, you've looked at all the stuff in the world and you realise that there's nothing that will truly satisfy. Now, you, you, know, you realise that the more that you get of the world, the more depressed you feel. Because at the end of the day, it's all empty. It's all coming to nothing. What do you do when you feel disillusioned by the promises of materialism? What do you do when you feel disillusioned by the lusts of your own heart, that they're never satisfied? It always results in emptiness. What do you do? Again, you run to Jesus because he alone can satisfy. See, that's the type of king he is. And he is the king who welcomes such people. He welcomes the weary. He welcomes the burdened. And he makes a kingdom out of nobodies because that's the type of king he is. And so that's the that's the people of the king. So the plight of the king, the people of the king, the third thing we see is the protection of the king. So that's in chapter 22, verses 6 to uh, 23. And this section, it focuses mostly, uh, focuses mostly on Saul. Uh, and, and it brings out really the contrast that Saul was as a leader compared to David. So David, remember, he's, um, you know, he's running, he's hiding, he's sitting in caves, uh, he's surrounded by a bunch of misfits. Look at the contrast that we see in Saul in verse 6. It says, Saul, uh, he heard that David was discovered, but the second sentence says, Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand and all his servants were standing about him. And you look at that, that's a picture of power. Now, Saul looks impressive. On the height, spear in hand, surrounded by servants, ready to help him out. You know, outward appearances say that Saul is the one with power, that Saul is the one who's secure. Outward appearances say that Saul is the one you'd want to be aligned with because that's where success is. That's where security is. And yet, what do we see in verses 7 to 8? That for all the outward appearances... Inwardly, Saul was, was completely insecure. That he's, he, he, Everything about him was just crumbling around him. Uh, in verses 7 to 8, he goes into like a bit of a, he throws a bit of a pity party. And he starts complaining to everyone around him, uh, whinging about how people aren't feeling sorry for him. It's a real um, sad picture, actually. Uh, <clears throat> he starts accusing all of his servants 
of um, conspiring against him, even though they've done nothing wrong? That's because Saul is so insecure about his throne that he, he second-guesses anyone who looks sideways at him. And he has this mentality that, that everyone's trying to align with David and he's feeling this paranoia. And so he, he's against everyone. Uh, David, on the other hand, um, if you read the Psalms that David wrote at this time, you realise that outwardly David had no strength. He had no security outwardly. He looked like a complete weakling, helpless, and yet inwardly, what did David have? He had a security that nothing could touch because his security was in the Lord. And uh, Psalm 57, um, David did write at this time, and it, he wrote, In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. See, David had a refuge that nothing could touch. He was the one who was really secure. But there's another contrast here, and that is the contrast between Saul and David in the way that they treat people under their rule. So this is where we have um, Doag the Edomite comes back onto the scene. You know, Doag the Edomite. And uh, Doag, uh, he, he spied on Ahimelech uh, and David. And while Saul's complaining that you know, everyone's conspiring against him, well, Doag thinks, aha, now this is my chance to um, win some brownie points with Saul. And so he dobs Ahimelech in. Saul is absolutely outraged. He, he summons Ahimelech and accuses him of helping David. And Ahimelech says, Oi, I've done nothing wrong. I didn't know about any um, conspiracy or anything. I was just doing what I normally do. And, and he really was innocent because remember, David kept him in the dark. Saul won't listen. He just um, becomes judge and jury and sentences Ahimelech to death. And he says to his servants, Oi, you, strike down Ahimelech. And the servants are Saul like, No, 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 we're not touching the priests. They know better. And so what does Saul do? It's like he says, release the Doag. And Doag is let loose. And what does he do? He strikes down Ahimelech. Not only that, he kills all the priests. Then he goes back to the town of Nob and destroys everything. All the people, even the animals. He's out of control. And Saul allows it all to happen. Because Saul... In his paranoia and his hatred of David, he spiraled so out of control that he, he wants anyone with even just a hint of attachment to David, he wants them dead. He's filled with that much hatred. That's the type of king Saul was. No wonder people were dissatisfied with Saul. And again, there's a psalm that comes out of this time. It's Psalm 52 where David says, Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? God will break you down forever. Well, in contrast to Saul, David, he's not the king who destroys. He's the king who protects. And uh, verse 20 tells us that someone did escape that day, uh, one of the sons of Ahimelech, uh, a guy named Abiathar. And he escaped, and what did he do? He fled after David. And uh, he tells David about all that happened, and David takes responsibility because he knows at the end of the day it was him who put Ahimelech in that situation. Um, but he does say to Abiathar in verse 23 um, just this wonderful statement. He says, Stay with me, 
do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. That's a very interesting statement because it has these two sides to it. One is, hey, align yourself with me and we're both going to be hated. We're both going to be hunted. But if you align yourself with me, you'll be safe. And if you think about, again, remember outward appearances? This looks insane. Why would Abiathar flee to David? Like, surely that's, another, that's a death sentence. You align yourself with David, you're going to be hunted too. Why would he do it? It makes no sense to flee to David unless, of course, David is the true king. And that's what Abiathar can see. He has eyes to see that David is the Lord's anointed. He can see that despite appearances, that David is where true security is found. Why? Because, because all of the Lord's purposes are tied up with the true anointed, with David. And Abiathar has faith to see that. And so he can see that even though appearances say that David is the most unsafe place to be, but by faith he sees that that's where true security is found. And that's why he runs to David. And see, so it is, and so much more when it comes to King Jesus. Because King Jesus, remember last week we looked at Psalm 2. And what did Psalm 2 say about Jesus? That the kings of the earth gather together and take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed. It's talking about Jesus. Okay, the world is against Jesus. Jesus is hated by the world. That's why when he came into the world, what happened to him? Rejected, killed. Right? Psalm 2 predicted it. And so what happens when you attach yourself to Jesus in a world that hates him? You're going to be in the firing line too. Okay? You'll experience the hostility of, of belonging to Christ. Uh, Jesus even told us that over and over. If the world hates you, remember that it hated me. Uh, have a look at Luke 21, verse 16. He's told his disciples that you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. Doesn't that seem a strange thing to say? Some of you are going to die, but your hair will be fine. <laughs> Is that what he's saying? No, he's, he's actually saying the exact same thing that David said to Abiathar. He's saying, stay with me, don't be afraid. He who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. See, to be aligned with Jesus, it means that you will be in the firing line. That the hostility that Jesus faced, that hostility will also come onto you in some cases. And yet what Jesus is saying here is that the protection he provides, it's so much greater than David's. Because he is the true king. And Jesus is saying that if you're with him, then you have a safety that not even death can touch. Yeah, you might die, but you'll be safe, even in death. How can that be? Well, the only way that can be is if Jesus is 
as he says he is, he is the resurrection and the life. See, what was Jesus' path in life? Suffering, followed by glory, the glory of resurrection. That means everyone who's attached to him, then that becomes your life too. A life of suffering, rejection, but what follows? The glory of resurrection. It's for everyone who is attached to Christ. That's why Jesus can say that with him you are safe. Yeah, you might be killed, but you're safe forever. You're safe for all of eternity with him. That's the only place where true protection is, and that's the protection of the king. And so we actually see in this passage what it means to follow Jesus. We see that Jesus, like David, he is the king who's whose path to glory was through suffering and rejection. And we can see that to belong to him is to follow the same path. It's to be hanging out in the cave like those men. It's, it's to be hated by society, which is why when Jesus calls us to follow him, he calls us to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. There's no other way. We're going to walk in the footsteps of a crucified king, so that means the Christian life is not always going to be easy. Okay, when, when we uh, face hostility, we go, oh yeah, that's exactly what it's meant to be like. That's what Jesus told us. It requires sacrifice. Uh, it means being prepared to not be liked. But you know, the question we all need to ask is that the, the very question that this passage is forcing us to ask, who would you rather be attached to? Who would you rather be aligned with? Saul or David? Or to put it into today's terms, would you rather be attached to the world or to Jesus? Because in the end, Jesus will reign. Jesus will reign. That's why we run to him. Okay, do you feel distressed? Are you debtor, discontented, you run to Jesus. Because Jesus can say to us, stay with me, don't be afraid, with me you will be in safekeeping. Okay, that's the only place where real security is found. It's in Jesus. So run to him.